to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to come again to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. This very important verse that summarizes the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. While He walked this earth. Last time we saw that the call of Christ in this verse is the same call that we find in the words of Moses, and of David, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets. This was the call of John the Baptist. This was the call preached by the apostles. It's the call of Christ to the churches in Revelation. This call... Matthew 4, verse 17, is the call of God to us and to all mankind. We read in this verse what is at the very heart of God's message to you and to me. So let's read it again. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we have already seen the reason that Jesus has given for us to repent. Namely, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The great kingdom promised to Abraham, to Abraham a kingdom with, with perfect land and a perfect people living under the rule of a perfect king. This is the kingdom that is now at hand. Jesus came to announce the kingdom. And He's been building this kingdom even up to our day. And it is only through repentance that we can become a citizen of this great kingdom. Repentance marks the citizens of this kingdom while they are here on this earth. Christians are repenters. People who live a life of repentance. We saw last time that repentance is not a one-time thing. It is a continuing action that is to characterize our lives until the day we take our final breath. And so tonight we come to the heart of this subject of repentance. Our theme tonight is repentance defined. You see, we cannot obey the call of Jesus to repent until we know what it means to repent. If I stand before you tonight, and I call you all to be about the work of smurkuffling, there is simply no way you can do that, because you don't know what it is to smurkuffle, I'm assuming. Definitions matter. right? My word is made up. It has no definition But the word repentance has a definition, a definition we can understand. And if we understand what it is to repent, then we can do it. And we can obey the call of Christ. And we can heed His call. So in seeking to understand what repentance is, we could just open up Merriam-Webster's dictionary, see what Merriam-Webster has to say. But if we're going to make sure we understand this word the way Jesus understood it, the way God intends it, 
then we have to look to the Scriptures. And thankfully, over Christian history, there have been faithful believers who sought to take all that the Bible says about a subject and summarize it in a clear and concise way. This is what a confession does. A confession takes all that the Bible says about a subject and helps us say clearly the most essential and vital things about that subject. And so to help us understand the biblical definition of repentance, I want us to use the statement found in the 1689 London Confession of Faith. But... Before we look there, let me say one more word about why it is so important for us to define repentance correctly. And it's simply this. There is no salvation without repentance. There is no knowing God. There is no going to heaven. There is no having peace with the Almighty without repentance. Which means that if we get repentance wrong... Our very souls are lost. If we get our doctrine of the church wrong, if we get our doctrine of the end times wrong, if we get our doctrine of um, angels wrong, that's not good. It will be harmful to us to be wrong about those doctrines. But getting those doctrines wrong will not condemn us. If we get repentance wrong, and we believe that we've repented when in fact we have not, then we are in a great deal of trouble. Acts 3 verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may blot it out. Repentance is the call of the gospel, and therefore it is essential that we get this right. And so thankfully God has given us His word which speaks to us plainly about this subject. And the London Confession does a good job of summarizing what the Bible teaches. And so I put this statement in your outline so that you can follow along and look at it as I read it. This is what the London Baptist Confession says about repentance. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things." And so we're going to use that statement as a guide, and I want us to note eight aspects of repentance. Eight aspects of repentance. Number one, note that repentance is a gospel grace. A gospel grace. The confession uses the word evangelical, which is just another way of saying gospel. It is a gospel grace. But what does this mean? Well, repentance is a grace. That is, it is a gift from God. Why is it that some people truly turn from their sin to Christ and live unto Christ, while others who hear the same gospel do not turn? Ultimately, it is because 
while many are left with hardened hearts, God graciously grants some the gift of repentance. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look to me and on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. In other words, God promised in the Old Testament that there would be a day when His people would be given a spirit of grace, an undeserved spirit, a free gift from God to us. And when that spirit comes upon us, what would it cause us to do? It would cause us to weep when we consider our God and when we consider Christ and how our sin put our Savior on the cross. People who treat their sins as something small will suddenly find themselves overcome with grief because of their sin. How? By the supernatural working of God. Repentance is a gift. Or listen to 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25. Paul tells Timothy, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So Paul says explicitly that through Timothy's proper behavior, through his treating people with love, through His speaking the truth to them in kindness, God might be pleased to grant them repentance. And so true saving repentance is not something that originates with us. It originates with God who grants it to us. It's a gift. And Mount Hermon, this is a great gift. There will not be under your Christmas tree this year any gift that compares with God's gift to you of repentance. Let us not forget as we sit in this room tonight that there are millions groping in darkness and we have been granted to see the light. Billions around us call evil good and good evil, but you've been given eyes to see the truth. Others are still living in the matrix of this world, seeing things in a false way. But you now see reality, things as they actually are. And because of this, you can now follow Christ down the road to holiness, while the rest of the world cannot. But what does the confession mean when it says that repentance is an evangelical grace or a gospel grace? And the answer is this. As wonderful as repentance is, it would not save you apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is a gift that saves your soul. But it only saves your soul because Jesus went to the cross and bore the wrath of God for all who would turn from their sins. Repenting of your sins does not mean your sins go unpunished. It means that Christ bore the punishment for you. Because of Jesus 
God is just to accept your repentance and to pardon every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. So first, repentance is an evangelical grace or a gospel grace. Number two, note that repentance includes the sight of sin. The sight of sin. Repentance begins with you and me coming to see our own sins. This is where it all starts. God in His grace draws our attention to sins we've committed so that we can own up to them and acknowledge them. We see this taught throughout the Scriptures. In Acts 26, verse 18, Paul says that Christ called him to go with the gospel to the Gentiles, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. This is where repentance always begins, with eyes being opened. In the parable of the prodigal son, The prodigal is blind. He's living an an indulgent, immoral life until all of a sudden, cold, hard reality hits him. And by God's grace, we're told that he came to himself. He, He had been in blindness and all of a sudden he's there, he's with those pigs and he looks and he thinks about what he's done and he sees his sin. And we know he sees his sin because he says, if I go back to my father, perhaps he'll at least let me be a servant. Right? He knew he was guilty. There can be no repentance as long as we're living in denial. We cannot truly repent of any sin that we do not first acknowledge in our lives. Until you own it, you cannot repent of it. As long as we are refusing to acknowledge our sins, as long as we are blind to our sins, we are stuck in our sins. They will cling to us for the rest of our lives. This is why the miracle of Christ in the Gospel of John was so amazing. He healed a man born blind. We're told that the people marveled at this. Never before had a man born blind recovered his sight. And yet Jesus was teaching by this miracle that He is the one who can heal people who were born blind, even those born with a more severe kind of blindness. Not just physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. Jesus is the one who can cause people who are blind to their own sin to see their sin and their need for salvation. We've spoken over and over again about that one aspect of the natural human heart that the Bible lifts up above all else. What is the heart above all else, Jeremiah says? The human heart is deceitful above all else. The natural human heart deceives. You and I are living every day among self-deceived people. And we used to be among them. We live among people who think that they see, but their own hearts have blinded them. Their love for themselves have blinded them to the truth about themselves. And if that isn't bad enough, the devil is a great deceiver. 
And he is working to keep people in blindness. Mount Hermon, it is a wonderful, wonderful gift to be able to see and acknowledge our own sins. Picture a man whose whole life has been a life of wreaking destruction upon others. You know people like this. Uh, There's a man who maybe he's had relationships with several different women. He he makes one woman promises. He uses her for a while and then he he leaves her broken and she's hurting and, and alone. Then he moves on to the next. Sometimes he fathers children by these women only to forsake those children and to care nothing for them. And this man continues year after year bringing pain and destruction into the lives of others. But he's so caught up in his own arrogance and his own self-love, he will not see what he's doing. In his mind, he's constantly the victim. In his mind, it's always someone else's fault. What will cause this man to stop what he's doing? He must be brought to see. His eyes must be opened. And only after the lights are turned on will he recognize his sins against God and against these other people. Only after he sees can he stop and spare others from the kind of harm he's been bringing about. Only after he sees can he do something to make right all that he's messed up. No cancer can be dealt with well until it has been discovered. Those who do not know they are sick will not come to a physician for healing. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me paraphrase Thomas Watson. He says, many who spy faults in others see none in themselves. They cry that they have good hearts. Is it not strange that two should live together and eat and drink together and yet not know each other? This is the case of a sinner. His body and his soul live together. They work together. And yet this man is unacquainted with himself. He does not know his own heart, nor what a hell he carries about within him. Under a veil, his deformed face is hid from him. People are veiled by their ignorance and their self-love, and therefore they do not see what deformed souls they have. Just as the falconer blindfolds the hawk until he sees the prey that he wants the hawk to go after, so the devil can blind sinners, and he carries them hooded straight into hell. Men have great insight into worldly matters, but when it comes to themselves and their own sin, It's as if their mind's eye has been cut out with a sword. How great is the difference between the person who sees his own sin and the person who doesn't? It is the difference between heaven and hell. 1 John 1, 9 and 10, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. One person knows his sin and therefore he confesses his sin and he is saved. 
The other person refuses to acknowledge his sin. And John says God's word is not in him. And he's lost. Number three. Number three. Notice that repentance includes a sense of the vileness of one's own sin. Repentance includes a sense of the vileness of one's own sin. In other words, it's, it's not enough to simply see and acknowledge our sins. True repentance includes a sense in one's own soul of just how awful our sins really are. The confession speaks of being made sensible by the Holy Spirit of the manifold evils of our sin. It speaks of detesting our sin. It's not enough to just acknowledge your sin. We must sense the heinousness, the wickedness, the vileness of our sin, and we have to detest it. Remember the parable that Jesus taught in Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The Pharisee represents the man still in blindness. Instead of confessing his sin, he boasts about himself before God. Don't ever boast about yourself before God. He boasts about all that he has done. Notice the tax collector. He doesn't just confess his sin. He is weighed down by the vileness of his sin. He has a sense in his heart of just how terrible his sins are. He beats his breast, we're told. He will not even lift up his eyes towards heaven. So great is this man's apprehension of the sheer majesty of God and the holiness of God and the vileness of his own sin. He dared not even look up. And this is a picture of true repentance, Jesus says. Without this sense of how terrible our sins are, all of our repentance will be sheer hypocrisy. If we simply confess our sins without actually hating our sins, we are putting on a charade. There have been many people in the history of the world who acknowledge their sins only because they were convinced that they had to acknowledge them to go to heaven, But even as they acknowledged their sins, they weren't torn up over them. They had no sense that their sins were really all that bad. Friends, true repentance leads to true salvation. Sham repentance leads to a sham salvation. We must not think that we can confess our sins one moment and then continue to love and live in our sins the next. We must not be like that wicked teenager who acts like a well-behaved young man or young woman when the parents are around, but becomes completely different when the parents are not around. 
That teenager isn't pursuing holiness from the heart. That teenager is putting on a show for his or her parents. When the parents are gone, the teenager shows that he or she still loves sin and indulges in it. How many just like that have acknowledged their sins before God when they had to or in in order to gain some worldly advantage or under pressure, but without actually hating the sin itself? How many times have we seen some politician admit some terrible sin and publicly apologize and everybody rolls their eyes because we know the politician is truly only sorry that he got caught? Real repentance must include a real sense of how terrible one's own sin is. Have you ever heard of foxhole religion? I fear this is what a lot of people in our culture have. In a foxhole with gunshots blaring and bombs blasting all around, many a soldier has suddenly made a vow in that moment to turn to God from sin. Many a soldier has said in that moment, God, if you'll spare me, if you'll get me back out of this place, home where I want to be, I'll change my life and I'll walk differently from this point forward. I promise God. But almost as many as have made that vow have gone back to their old ways of life after God spared them. Because they didn't have any real hatred of their sin. They were repenting for the sake of self-preservation. They were trying to manipulate God, but there was no real change of heart. How many people have heard a sermon on hell and the awful judgment of God? And that sermon produced in them some sort of shallow repentance sheerly out of fear of hell. They didn't really hate their sins. They didn't even feel that their sins were all that bad, but they don't want to go to hell. And so they claim repentance. But because they were not gripped by the wickedness of their sin, it didn't take long for them to go right back to it and to live in it with a quiet conscience. Mount Hermon, we must have nothing to do with foxhole religion. God promised in Zechariah that there would be a day when He would pour out His Spirit and one effect of this would be that His people would genuinely mourn over their sins. They would grieve that their sins were so vile that it took the cross of Christ to pay for them. Now at this point I want to remind you of four great reasons. Four great reasons why you should hate your sin with a passionate hatred. I want to help us have a sense of the vileness of our sins so that we will go further in turning away from them. And I'll warn you ahead of time, I'm only going to mention two tonight. And we'll get to the other two next time. So here we go. Number one, you should hate your sin because of its very nature. Because of its very nature. There is nothing in sin that should attract your love. Everything about sin is pure evil. What is sin? The Bible is consistent in its definition of sin. Sin is the breaking of God's law. 1 John 3 verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is 
lawlessness, John says. So righteousness is living in accordance with God's good commands. Sin is breaking God's good commands. It may be that you've done something that God has forbidden. Or it may be that you failed to do something that God commanded you to do. James 4, verse 17, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sin is having graciously received from the hand of God knowledge of what is right and knowledge of what is wrong and then choosing the wrong. God has very mercifully given all humanity, all humanity, a basic knowledge of right and wrong written into their very consciences. Sin is rejecting that gift, saying no thank you to God and choosing to do your own thing. Sin is ultimately us declaring that we are wiser than God, that we know better than God, that our way is superior to God's. God, I know that you say this is evil, but... And we justify it, and we go our way, and we take God from His throne, or at least we think we do, and we put ourselves in His place. At its very core, sin is us seeking to un-God God. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about the very nature of sin and self and how rotten sin is? You and I were created in the image of God to reflect His glory. His commands, His law, they're a gift to us to help us reflect His glory. They show us the way to live that, is, that will bring His blessing. When we live in accordance with God's commands, we reflect back to Him His own glorious character. We were created to display before God, before the angels, before one another, God's own very character. We were created to worship God through imitation, by living out on a micro scale, who He is on a macro scale. But every time we sin, we preach lies about God. Here we are as His image bearers, and we act in a way that is contrary to His nature. We have attitudes and we have thoughts that are deeply twisted and immoral and opposed to the God we're supposed to be representing. Every time we sin as image bearers of God, we are committing blasphemy. We are lying about the God we're supposedly imaging. Sin is the very opposite of the character of God. That's what it is. Sin is the opposite of the character of God. So so patience is an attribute of our glorious God. Our God is patient. So impatience is a sin. Wisdom is an attribute of our glorious God. So acting in foolishness is a sin. Generosity is a mark of our glorious God. And so greed is is a sin. Sin is so vile because sin is the very opposite of God. And God is the very source and sum of all that is truly good and truly perfect and truly beautiful. Sin is anti-God. Satan is not the opposite of God. 
Satan was created by God. Hell is not the opposite of God. Hell was created by God. Sin is the opposite of God. The old Puritan Joseph Eileen said this. He said, It would be better for you to die in a jail or in a ditch or in a dungeon than for you to die in your sins. If death, as it will take away all your comforts, would also take away all your sins, well, that would be some mitigation. But no, your sins will follow you when all your friends have left you and all your worldly enjoyments have shaken hands with you. Your sins will not die as a prisoner's other debts will. Your sins will go to judgment with you and they will be your accusers there and then they will go to hell with you and they will be your tormentors there. We should hate sin because of the very nature of sin. And then number two, and finally for tonight, you should hate your sin because of the one your sin is against. Because of the one your sin is against. Ultimately, all sin is against God. David in Psalm 51 had just committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had had her rightful husband killed in war. And yet he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And we read Psalm 51 and we think, what? How can David say that he has only sinned against God? Certainly he sinned against Bathsheba. Certainly he sinned against Uriah. How can he say against you and you only, God, have I sinned? And I think part of what's going on there is that David is realizing that ultimately all of sin has God at the center of its target. Sin is the breaking of the law of God. Ultimately, every sin is a refusal of God's good commands, a rejection of God's wisdom, an assertion that our way is better and best. What's more... While you may sin against me, I will never be able to say that I deserve to be treated better. Have you ever said something like that? Has someone ever sinned against you and you responded by saying, I deserve better than this? Well, what if we were truly treated as we deserve? Friends, any Christian should know that if he was treated as badly as he really deserved, he would be in hell this very moment. Even when people sin against me and even when people sin against you, we still know we are being treated better than we deserve. Romans 8.28 tells me that even those sins of people against me will ultimately be worked for my good. Joseph said in Genesis, what my brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. There is one, though, who can say of every sin ever committed against him, I deserve better. And that's God. That is the Holy One, the God of Israel, who is worthy of full obedience. How can we describe the glorious perfection of God? He is too holy to even look upon sin. 
who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, Exodus 15.11. We would not exist apart from God. We would not have the life that we have this moment and the breath in our lungs that we're breathing this moment were it not for God. God in His perfect wisdom does all things well. God makes no mistakes. God is full of love. He is an ocean of love. He's ready to receive every sinner who will turn to Him for help. Every day as people forget about God, He has not forgotten them, but has numbered every hair on their heads. And dare we forget that this is the God who not only cares about us, but He is the God who flung out the galaxies with the tip of His fingers. He governs the rotation and orbit of every planet. He holds the universe in His hands. And this is the God we rebel against every single time we commit a sin. Who of us in this room has not sinned against that God today? Who of us in here has not sinned against God multitudes of times in our lives? And who of us in this room does not deserve the eternal torments of hell? So we say with David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. Mount Hermon, what is true repentance? It is a gospel grace given to us by God. It includes our eyes being opened so that we see our own sin. And it causes our hearts to have a real sense of how vile our sin really is. And only because of this are we actually moved to turn from sin to do what is right. We'll pick up there next time. Till then, let us pursue a life of repentance for the glory of our Savior, that our lives might better bring glory to Him. Let's pray.